If you don't know, Glenn Miller is one of the pastors over at Valley Church, and I got to work closely with him for about 10 years or so, and he really has impacted my life in a huge way. And this morning, it's really fitting to have him come at our five-year anniversary and, and be with us. All right, would you just welcome up Glenn? Where is he? There he is. Thanks, uh, thanks, Dave. Joy for me to be with you. I brought my sweetheart of 47 years along with me today. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I think I recognize probably about two-thirds of you or so. And uh, for those of you that I don't recognize, hi. <laughs> it's a joy joy for me to be with you here, especially on, on the fifth anniversary. Gosh, I remember passing out flyers. How many of you remember that? Flyers in the neighborhood, going door to door, and all the other things uh, years and years ago. Pardon? You check it. Check it out. Is the green light on? The green light's on. Uh, keep talking. Maybe we get some sound here. Can you hear me back there, Dave? Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, great. But uh, five years, been been uh, quite a while. Any of you husbands ever forgotten an anniversary? Come on, be honest. Anybody? <laughs> Ken? Oh, okay, Rick, t- two, two of you. All right. 47 years. Honey, I don't think I've, I've missed one. I, I've been, you know, I've forgotten a lot of other things, but that one. I don't know if you heard about old Ed. I mean, it was his 15th anniversary with his wife, and, and Ed completely forgot and his wife, Peggy, she was fit to be tied. And uh, she went up to him and says, I'll tell you what, 15 years and you forgot my anniversary. There better be something out in the driveway tomorrow and it better go from zero to 200 in less than six seconds. So the next morning when she got her bathrobe, she looked, there was a, there was a gift sitting right out there in the middle of the driveway. And uh, so she went in and, and uh, she unwrapped it. And sure enough, it was a bathroom scale. <laughs> now, you, you, need, you, need, you need to pray for old Ed. He hasn't been seen or heard of ever since. Yeah. Why? Why Christianity? Why are you a Christian and not a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a tree-hugging pantheist, or a secular humanist? I'm not asking whether you're an atheist, because as G.K. Chesterton said, if God didn't exist, there would be no atheist. Or Dante Rossetti in the late 1800s stated, he's always admired atheists. Because they have so much faith. (laughs) But why are you a Christian? Please forgive me. Maybe some of you aren't. And if so, we're glad that you're here today. But perhaps we should define what a Christian is. And it's not as easy as you might think. Everything depends on the definition. To muddy the waters further, 90% of Americans believe 
in God, and 75% or thereabout call themselves Christians. So if you went to any major city in the U.S. and you asked, are you a Christian? You'd get all sorts of answers. Of course I'm a Christian. I was born in America. I was raised in a Christian home. I'm a baptized Catholic. I read my Bible every day. I'm a Methodist. I go to church on Sundays. I walked an aisle, said a prayer, signed a card, raised my hand. The dictionary defines a Christian as a person who believes in Jesus Christ and exemplifies him in their life. J.I. Packer says, the essence of Christianity is the reality of communion with Christianity's living founder, the mediator, Jesus Christ. I cannot think of a better biblical definition of a Christian than what you find in one of the very first letters that was written to a church, the church in Thessalonica. And this is what it says. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now note what he says. In the past, you turn from idols or whatever else that they worshipped. In the present, you serve the living God. And in the future, you wait for his son Jesus to come back. Does that definition fit your life? Have you turned? Are you serving? Are you waiting? Now, if so, why are you a Christian? Many people, when asked that question, why they're a Christian, proceed to answer how they became a Christian. That's not the question. And my question isn't irrelevant. An eyewitness follower of Jesus exhorted all Christians in the first century to do this. This is from 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord or boss or master in your heart. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If you call yourself a Christian, are you able to defend what you believe with sound reasons and factual answers? The word that you see here for defense is apologia, from which we get our word apology. It's literally a plea. It's an answer to clear oneself. So apologetics is the discipline of defending the position through the systematic Use of reason. Can you defend what you say you believe? And so Peter is convinced that all followers of Jesus Christ must be able to defend Christianity against objections, misrepresentations, and expose error within other worldviews. Now you notice the word hope there. It's a hope that is internal. It's not just a hope so. 
It's in your head. It's in your heart. It's at the very core of your being. And notice also that we are to present this truth in a respectful and winsome manner. That's our calling. That's what the last five years have been, and that's what the future holds. Our world here in Silicon Valley is searching for answers to their existence. People are groping in the darkness. In 2010 alone, 60 million people worldwide passed from death into eternity. Two new recruits on a military base had just finished dinner and they walked out into a dense fog and they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. And they wandered off into the officer's quarters, which was strictly off limits. And suddenly the fog cleared and they saw a man in front of them with all kinds of stripes on his uniform. And one of the soldiers asked, Where are we? And the five-star general replied, Where are we, sir? And went on to say, You know who I am? And the one recruit looked at the other and said, Man, are we ever in trouble. We don't know where we are and he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> now we can laugh, but look, there are millions in the world today that don't have a clue about their identity or their destiny. Who are you? Where are you on this journey that we call life? If you don't know who you are, you don't know where you are, it's tough to know where you're going. But of course, if you don't know where you're going, then any road will take you there. There are countless religions and philosophies of life, but do they all end up at the same place? Do all roads lead to God and the fountain of youth? I want to put two statements here on the screen. Uh, I want to see if you agree with either one of these two. Here's the first. All religions are superficially different, but fundamentally the same. Second, all religions are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. How many of you would vote for the second? How many of you don't like to vote? <laughs> See, many in our Western culture would agree with the first statement. But the second statement is definitely Eastern thought. You go to Pakistan, you go to India, you go to the Middle East, there men and women take their religion seriously. They are ready to live for it. They are ready to die for it. Some of them the strap bombs to themselves and blow themselves up. They do not believe for one second that all religions are fundamentally the same. Nor did the early Christians. They lived, they suffered, they died because they believed beyond a shadow of the doubt that Jesus was the only way. That there was salvation in no other name. They were convinced by the one they followed that if any living person didn't repent, turn to Jesus Christ, they would suffer eternal torment. To them, heaven and hell were literal places. As literal as this mountain. Now imagine yourself for a second. 
You are standing at the base of a huge mountain and you desire to climb to the top. And a stranger walks up to you and says, Hey, you see all those paths? You can take any one of them. They all lead to the top. So you ask, really, have you taken every path and has each one led you to the top? Well, no, but I'm sure they all lead there. Have you ever been to the top? Well, not yet, but I hope to one day. Well, wouldn't you have to be at the top to know if all paths lead there? Well, I, I guess so. You guess so. Doesn't it make sense that only the one standing at the top could verify the fact? Hmm. I think you might be right. Did anyone ever have a superior perspective? Christianity stands or falls on the narrow words of Jesus. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to John chapter 14. You might remember our Lord's words there in John chapter 14. In John 13, he's told the disciples he's going to die, he's going to go away. And so their hearts are troubled. And in verse 1, he says these words to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Are there things that trouble your heart? There are plenty. They come in all shapes and sizes. So, Jesus says, I'm going to go away. So their hearts are troubled. He says to them then, what's the cure? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he provides some words of comfort for their troubled hearts. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where we are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you believe that statement? Is that why you're a Christian? Or is it because Christianity has a little better answers than others? Or it's a little bit more moral? Peter says you and I need to give undeniable reasons for the faith, this hope that is within us. And he would say that it begins with the letter See, it's Christ, it's the cross, it's the empty tomb. If you don't have that as a center, you don't have a believable historical answer. Christ alive from the dead is our only hope. Friends, that's good news. But good news that isn't explained is not only isn't good, it isn't even news. The word the in here is what separates Christianity from all the other religions, philosophies, and isms of the world. 
Jesus didn't say He was our way, our truth, our life. He didn't say, I am a door. You know what a door is. You, you passed through one today. Okay? It's a passage. It's, it's uh, like a, a course traveled from one place to another. That's what a way is. Dave used to, and some of you were part of the worship team at, at Valley Church, the Saturday night, Sunday night service. It was called the... It was called the way. So Jesus calls Himself... The way. And I just want to share with you this morning just four things regarding Jesus and the way. First of all, He is the way to reality. The word reality means that which is true, that which is authentic. It's the opposite of skepticism and idealism. And so I want us for just a moment today to think about the way He came. John starts out his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then he goes on in verse 14 and he says this, And the Word, the Logos, the eternal Word of God, that which communicates, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the great divide. That is what separates Christianity from all the other religions and philosophies of the world. You take them and it is words upon words upon words. Read the Koran, the teachings of Buddha, the Book of Mormon, Plato, Aristotle, some of the modern day philosophers. It's human thought, it's opinions, it's their perspectives, it's just words upon more words. But the word becoming flesh... That's the separation. William Barclay says that this is the greatest verse in the entire New Testament. The Word became flesh. A God you could see, a God who the early disciples says, we handled Him, we touched Him, we felt Him. You see, God must reveal Himself or we'll never know what God is like. Some say, well, did he have to become human to do this? Wasn't there there's some other way, some less expensive way, some less humiliating way? Well, he has revealed himself in some ways through nature, huh? I guess Ben preached something about that. The heavens declare the glory of God. They're a marvelous display of his handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech. Night after night, you look up at the heavens, it reveals knowledge. But that was partial. God has written His law in our conscience. You know right from wrong. I've done a three-part series at, at Valley, just finished up. So my second one was on the truth, and last week, the life. But you have this moral law in your conscience. It is God-given, so that you know right from wrong. And then God chose the people whom He was going to reveal Himself through. We call it Israel. 
And so he spoke through them. But it was still limited. Until 2,000 years ago, when the Word became flesh. We call it the Incarnation. The Incarnation meaning the manifestation of God in living form. It was predicted as early as the third chapter in the Bible after Adam and Eve sinned and one was going to come from the seed of the woman that was going to crush the very head of Satan. It was prophesied 700 years before his birth. Isaiah said, Behold, a virgin is going to be with child and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This angel appears to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and he was going to put Mary away secretly and the angel come and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and you shall call his name Jesus for it is he who will save their people from their sins. Why Christianity? It's a removal of your sins in your transgressions, in your iniquities by this God that we were just singing about who is absolutely holy. You take the founder of any religion, any philosopher, see if their birth, the time of their birth, the place of their birth, their whole existence was ever foretold. No, none save Jesus. And our Lord taught that He was the only way. He was the door. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 7? Enter by the, what kind of gate? It's the narrow gate. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. But he says he's the only way. For example, if you want to go from here to Costco, how do you go? Well, how about this way? You go out here and you turn left onto Branham. And then you go down to Camden and you catch the freeway and you go back down 85 until you hit what? Elman and Expressway. And then you turn right onto Elman and Expressway and you go to Boston Hill Road and you hang a right and then Costco will be on your right. Okay? That's one way you could go. Or you could go out here and you could make a left and then you could go down to Meridian you could make another left and you could go to Boston Hill and make a left and you could go right before you hit Elman Expressway you make a left. But if you have your GPS, the GPS will tell you that you go out straight, you turn right, you go down to Elmer Expressway, you turn a right on Boston Hill Road and Costco will be on your right. Now, you can get there the other two ways, but they're both wrong. <laughs> because it's not the shortest way to get to Costco. There's only one way. And people, you know, they get upset. You Christians, you are so narrow. Well, aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, you know what? There's 50 doors. I'm praying that you get the right one that leads to eternal life. I'm, I'm just hoping you get lucky today. No. No. All roads do not lead to God. All roads do not lead to eternal life. He's the way to reality. Secondly, he's the way to intimacy. They said you've been on this series called, you know, knowing this God who loves me, your lover. Intimacy is defined by the dictionary as a growing friendship 
that develops through long association. Patty and I have been married for 47 years. I've known her for 48. I thought I knew her when we got married. I was mistaken. She thought she knew me. She was very mistaken. But I want you to think about the way in which he loves. You see, love is a relational quality between two human beings. I heard someone say a, a certain Christian quote, children's book, starts out this way. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Oh, but he was very lonely. And so he decided to create a man and a woman so he wouldn't be lonely anymore. You know what you do with a children's book like that? You put it in the circular file. That's what you do with it. God didn't create the world so that he has somebody to love. He already had that long before. Love already existed within what we refer to as the Godhead. Jesus said in John 17, Father, you have loved me before the world began. And so he affirms the deity. He affirms the Trinity. Ravi Zacharias said one day, he says, I've been trying to... He's an apologist from India, lives in the United States now. I think Atlanta has his own ministry. But he said, I've been trying to think about how I could explain the Trinity to people. He says, all illustrations... Uh, fail. But he said, one day I thought about this. He says, take conception. A husband and a wife in love. One sperm, one egg, and at the moment of conception, new life. Three separate people, but one. Why Christianity? Because it's true. You take and you read the four different gospel writers and they all line up together. See if any of the leaders of any religion or any philosophy ever loved like Jesus. His eyes full of tears as he weeps with Mary before he raises Lazarus, her brother, from the dead. His hands touching an untouchable leopard in Mark 1. His feet traveling to a city where no one went, the city of Samaritan, at least for a Jew, to a woman who'd been divorced five times and was now living with a man. His heart breaking as he weeps over the city of the great king, Jerusalem. His lips uttering words from the cross like, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. What philosophy, what religion has a God like that? You see, in compassion, you make a moral judgment to do something about it. It's miles apart from empathy and sympathy. Jesus was moved with compassion and he did something about it. You see, the message of the cross isn't that God's love is a result of giving himself for us, but love is the reason that God gave himself for us. If you just flip the next slide up. It's the reason. 
The cross is a window, so to speak, in which you can see the very heart of God for people like you and me who are lost, who are sinful, who are rebellious, who are in fact even enemies. You see, He's the way to intimacy, to experience friendship. Because you need a friend in this life. You need someone that can stick closer than a brother. The trials and the things that you face. Christianity is not for sissies. Third, Jesus is the way to victory. He's the way to, to overcome in the midst of life. The word victory has to do with the idea of conquering, defeating, beating, trouncing, prevailing over. And that's what he did. At Calvary, over sin, over death, over Satan, over self, he died. You sometimes hear people say that the origin of all religions, well, they're kind of basically the same. Okay, well, let's, let's see for a moment. Take Judaism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam. These religions were founded by people who died at an older age having spent their life teaching their ideas. Moses died at 120. His eye was still clear, his vigor not abated. Buddha died at the age of 80, they say, in peaceful serenity. Confucius died at the age of 72. Muhammad died at the age of 62 with his harem in Mecca in the arms of his favorite wife. In the whole spectrum of world religions, only one is radically different in its origins, and that is Christianity. Jesus died at the age of approximately 33 after a teaching ministry of three years. He was ostracized by his own society. He was betrayed and denied by a small group of supporters. He was mocked by his opponents. He was forsaken, as it seemed, even by God himself. He suffered one of the most agonizing forms of public execution ever devised by humans. Do you find that a strange way to start a religion? What did the deaths of Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Joseph Smith accomplish? But what did the death of Jesus accomplish? 1 Corinthians 1.13 says that by His doing, God's, we here today, if you're a believer, have become wisdom from God. That's insight and knowledge into the understanding, the very nature of who He is. We have become righteousness. That means that we have been accepted and put in right standing by Him. Sanctification, whereby He makes us pure and holy in His sight. And redemption, meaning that He paid the ultimate price for your salvation and mine, having put away sin's penalty. And it goes on and says, by who's doing it's His. You, you, you can't get into the kingdom on your own. It's His doing that we're in Christ. That's why Paul goes on to say, that's why we boast only about what Christ has done for us. Philosophy provides nothing tangible, no hope whatsoever. Someone has described philosophy as 
a search in a dark room for a black cat that isn't there. <laughs> Some of you have studied philosophy and psychology. A Christian scientist explaining why Christianity for him, he answers this way. Listen, would that we could all answer. I look principally at how marvelously our universe, galaxy, solar system, and planet are designed for complex life here on Earth. The number of highly improbable coincidence rules out chance and strongly implies design. This is reinforced by the evidence from biology of the incredible complexity of life included the coded information in DNA. This remarkable molecule with the accompanied system of transcription and translation screams for intelligence. The fact that all people have some sense of right and wrong, even though we may disagree at times, tell us that we are comparing our morality to some invisible standard outside of ourselves that must come from a supreme lawgiver. I'm convinced, this scientist says, it's a supernatural God. If this God exists, then has he spoken to man? I quickly tell about the uniqueness of scripture written by 40 authors from eight Countries over 1,500 years in three languages, all consistent, unique message of God's love for a world and how he ransoms sinners. Where we have evidence from archaeology that consistently confirms the accuracy of Bible events, and I'm convinced the Bible is true and unique word of God. It's all about Jesus who repeatedly claimed to be the divine Son of God, offered his death and resurrection on behalf of mankind as proof, then bodily rose from the dead. It's the only rational conclusion of the evidence of the empty tomb. And on top of that, my personal experience for the last 37 years has shown me again and again the unique love and power of God. I had someone ask me, Glenn, why are you a Christian? You know my simple answer is? He has made me glad by what he's done. I was a healthaholic, an exerciseaholic, a gambleaholic, a swearaholic, and he delivered me. Do I still struggle? Hello. <laughs> I struggle daily. That's why I need a savior, a rescuer, a divine forgiver. And I have someone who has demonstrated that fact at Calvary, that he loved me. Look at the cost, the pain, the price. Was it worth it? Take a look at the person next to you. Was the price that God paid, that is the death of his son, worth it? Did he get his money's worth? <laughs> yeah. And last but not least, Jesus is the way to immortality. Immortal means not subject to death or decay, having perpetual life everlasting. This is the hope that Peter talked about that we need to have in our hearts and it's based on historical evidence, the very fact that he rose from the dead. When we lived in Sri Lanka as missionaries, 60% Buddhist, 20% Hindu, 10% Muslim, 10% uh, Roman Catholic. So on any given day, I would talk to perhaps one of those people coming from different, totally different worldviews. 
But sometimes after I got into a good conversation or built a friendship and built some trust, I would sometimes ask this question, why do you follow the teachings of a dead man? Buddha's, Buddha's dead. Muhammad is dead. All the Hindu writers, they're, they're all dead. I, I want someone who's cheated death and see if there's any way I can get in on it. And that's why Peter, when he writes, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where we drive a stake in the ground. That's our hope. we got somebody who's alive today. Somebody that you can go to. Now, Here's my final question for you today. Where are you in your relationship with Christ? Where are you? I've got uh, some different suggestions. Maybe you're here today and you're exploring the Christian faith. Fantastic. You're on the right path on the way. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not growing. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm a Christian and growing in my relationship with Christ. Or, I'm a Christian and I'm able to give reasons for my faith. And maybe some of you fit in this last category. I am a Christian able to give reasons why, but am not actively sharing my faith. We started with Peter saying that every Christian, that's who he was writing to, should be able to give a defense, a reason, answers for this hope that is within them. This is the hope that we have to offer here in South San Jose, in Silicon Valley, in California, and around the world. It's a certain hope. It's a sure hope. You know, you know, you know the way you're on right now? Where you're going? You're headed towards your final destination. Death. And what's on the other side of it? Are you prepared to meet God face to face? I hope you're not in hiding like Adam and Eve after they sinned. That Christ is the way, the only way. See, God isn't impressed with degrees. He's impressed by simple, childlike faith in His Son. And you come as you are. And you believe in Him. There was a little girl who was seriously ill. And she said, uh, Daddy, does the doctor think I'm going to die? With tears in his eyes, he said, Darling, the doctor doesn't think that you have much of a chance. Her face grew rather pale and she said, Dad, would you go down into the grave with me 
It's very dark. He said, well, honey, I, I can't until the Lord Jesus calls me. Well, Papa, can Mom go down into the grave with me? He says, no, honey, Mom can't go either. Her face grew paler still. And then she remembered what her mother and her father had taught her about the Lord Jesus, that he is a friend of sinners. And she poured out a little heart in childlike faith, said, Lord Jesus, forgive me. And as we're talking today, something about the fact that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And after a while, there's a smile that came upon her face and she turned to her dad and says, Papa, the grave is not as dark now. I was with Patty and I this last week or so, a gal's 99 years old. I didn't figure she would last the week, but somehow she made it through. But she's taken her last few breaths. And so will you, and so will I. And what's on the other side of that for us? What's on the other side of that for the believer is the one who went to prepare a place for you. He left his place to come to our place to take our place so we could go to his place. We're on a journey. And the way leads to Jesus. I hope you know him today. If you don't know him today, you are not prepared to die. And today, if you don't, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Don't put it off. Put your faith and trust wholly in this one who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who knew no sin, who took all of our sin, who was buried, who rose the third day according to the scriptures, who appeared to the twelve, to Mary, to five hundred at one time. Put your faith and trust in historical evidence and it will become real, personal and emotional in your own heart, in your own life. We have a living Savior for a dying world for you and for me. That's why NBC exists. is to hold out that message of life that He is the way, the truth, and the eternal life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank You today for five years of Your faithfulness to Neighborhood Bible Church, all the prayers, all the plans, all the work that still continues to go on. And uh, we look forward to seeing how you're going to continue to use this body of believers here to reach out in this community, this city, and around the world. And we want to thank you today for your Son, uh, the Lord Jesus, who though He was rich, for our sake He became poor that we through His poverty, through His suffering, through His death might enjoy 
all the riches and the glories that are going to follow, pleasures forevermore. So thank you for the privilege of worshiping here today. We honor you and praise your, your name for your faithfulness and kindness to us. Amen.